All right, so firstly, good morning. <clears throat> Hoping that everyone is feeling okay and everyone should be blessed, those who need with a refua shalema, and we should all be protected from the outside from getting ill. Amen. Very excited to be back to the uh, Tuesday day class. Before we continue to learn beautiful, deep, you can say Hasidic or you can say mystical insights regarding prayer as we are in the middle of learning the Gemara Brachas and for those who have the Art Scroll Gemara if you can go to page 31b3 if you have it 31b3 if you don't have it I really hope that I can be articulate enough that everyone should be able to properly follow along so before we get there I want to give a I want to give an important intro and this introduction, you'll see, is Mamish Bahashgacha Pratis. What I'm going to be speaking about is Mamish connected to the topic that we're learning about. In 1991, tonight, tonight meaning today is Chav Zayin Nisan. Last night and today we are in the 12th day of the Omer. At night, right after Maidiv, the Rebbe, as the Rebbe did very often, the Rebbe spoke a sicha. When I say the Rebbe did that very often, because from the passing of the Rebbetzin in 1988, the Rebbe on one hand stopped weekday fabrengens. The Rebbe from then onwards, meaning from after the Shloishim onwards, fabrenged every single Shabbos mamish. And the Rebbe spoke very often during the week. And as time went on, that became even more so whenever the Rebbe spoke, the Rebbe, after speaking, gave out dollars. And that was a big, that was a gavaldic way of us getting closer to the Rebbe. Um, the Rebbe used to go to the oil at least twice a week towards the end, meaning before the first stroke. The Rebbe used to go every Sunday night and every Thursday night. And then the Rebbe went every Monday night and Thursday night. The Rebbe, when he went to the oil, Imagine, Sunday the Rebbe gave dollars. Then he went to the mikveh and he went to the oil. The Rebbe sometimes came back, who knows, 11 at night. The Rebbe then would daven mincha. The Rebbe always daven mincha after he came back from the oil. The Rebbe then daven maidiv. And then the Rebbe would speak and give out dollars again. So on this date, that means the 27th going into the 28th, the Rebbe began speaking about the uniqueness of the time. The Rebbe spoke about the month of Nisan, that it's a month of redemption. The Rebbe spoke about the day, the, 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 the number, the number of the Oymer, the fact that in that year, like in this year, Pesach was a three-day Yom Tiv. In other words, like it was this year, the first days were Wednesday night, Thursday, Friday, so it went Thursday, Friday, Shabbos. So it was three days in a row, and there's something very powerful about what we call in Halacha having a Chazakah, that means repeating something three times and or more and linking everything to the coming of Mashiach. And all of a sudden, the tone changed. In, in time, perhaps, the Rebbe spoke now until the end another two or three minutes. But in quantity, these words are sitting on every chassid's heart until today. And the Rebbe, in truth, had shared the content a few years prior on a Purim 
but in a very festive setting. It was a Purim Fabrengen, and the Rebbe spoke in great length, and the tone of the voice was, as the Rebbe's tone generally always was, very positive. But on this night, the tone was the opposite of positive, which was very rare for the Rebbe. And what the Rebbe basically, the content is, is that it used to always be that a Jew knows that my responsibility as a Yid is to learn Torah and to keep mitzvahs. That's my responsibility. Is it my responsibility to bring Mashiach? No, I don't even know what that means. I'm doing what God wants and I'm eagerly awaiting for Mashiach to come. It used to be that the big tzaddikim of the generation, they were the ones that had the responsibility, so to say, of bringing Mashiach down. That's the way it used to be, the Rebbe said. However, being, the Rebbe says that everything that he has done until that sicha did not yet bring us to the, to the finish line. Mashiach is not down here in the world. And the Rebbe went on by saying, and not only that, not only don't we have yet Mashiach in the world, but so many Jews are in their own gullus. That's a very important distinction. You know, there is global redemption. Then there is my redemption. And everyone needs to be redeemed. And it's not a black and white redemption. Obviously, when we get redeemed from one constriction, and God willing, we go up to a higher ladder, we go up on a higher rung, we still are bound by, by greater by maybe more refined limitations. So yes, it's an endless journey, but there is a certain tipping point. There is a certain line in the sand where one can say that before I passed that line, I was in Gullus internally, and now I'm, I'm freed. I'm freed from my animal soul, and I'm freed from my Yetzir Hara, and I'm freed from certain very, very negative limitations, and that's a very big avoida. This is not a simple thing. This is certainly part of the redemptive process. Let's word it, Let's say it like this, that when enough Jewish people redeem themselves from their own gallus, that collectively brings Mashiach into the world. Then there is a global redemption. Or in the reverse, even the Jews that did not yet achieve their own personal redemption, all of us that will merit, God willing, the imminent coming of Mashiach, when there'll be the global redemption, that will inspire me for my personal redemption as well. The question is, who has to come before whom? And the Rebbe was demanding of Hasidim that we have to take the first step. We have to achieve what we will call my personal redemption. And being that none of that happened, so the Rebbe basically said is that from now on, this is in 1991, the avoida of bringing Mashiach is not on me. The Rebbe says it's on me like it is on everyone else. But it's on every single Jew. People didn't understand what the Rebbe is saying. Until now, people don't fully understand what that means. How, how are, what exactly, what do we need to do? What do we need to do now different than we were doing before? We always wanted Mashiach to come. We always knew that my one mitzvah can be the final mitzvah. We knew all that. But we didn't feel that the responsibility of bringing Mashiach is mine. We felt that my observance is on me. I got to be from, I got to keep the Shulchan Aruch. That's my Avaidah. And hopefully Mashiach will come. The Rebbe didn't want that. The Rebbe wanted for us to take responsibility for actually bringing global redemption. How to do and what to do, the Rebbe says, go figure it out. Everyone should, should decide what the best way is. And the Rebbe said, he, in, in the Sicha, that if, this is connected to the Gemara we'll be learning, that if we would really, truthfully, from the depths of our souls, cry out and demand of God, Ad Masai, then Mashiach would have come. 
The Rebbe says, of course, Hasidim are constantly shouting Ad Masai. They're doing it because the Rebbe told them to do it. It's not coming from me. It's coming from the Rebbe's uh, inspiration. Or just not even, not even through inspiration, but just fulfilling what the Rebbe said. And all of that is not going to work. It's, you got to mean it, you got to demand it, and you got to make it happen and figure out how to do it. This was certainly a huge turning point in Lubavitch, just to appreciate that the relationship between a chassid and the Rebbe is that there are certain things that we relied on the Rebbe. Because many things in my lives are beyond my reach. I, Halavai, am control of myself. That's my response. I am my responsibility. Anything outside of me is not something that I have control over. And in 99% of the cases, I do a lot of damage when I frame others, ki'ilu, that I have the power to choose for them or to make them do things or to stop them from doing things. It's a very unhealthy way of thinking. It's definitely a goalless mindset. I'm responsible for me. And halavai, I should succeed. Here, we are being told by the Rebbe that I am responsible to bring about Mashiach in the world. How do I do that? Anyways, that was the Sikha right then. The Rebbe said that he's not stepping out of, the, he's not going away. The Rebbe says that he's going to help us do our job, but it's our job. You know, just to know that the Sunday after the Sikha, a few days later, I think the Sikha then was Thursday night. The Sunday after <clears throat> um, the Sikha, there was a woman in Kran Heights who tragically lost a child. And she went by dollars. This is all video. You can watch this. And she spoke to the Rebbe words that many wanted to say, but we didn't feel that we have the right. It was chutzpahdik. But she, she, she spoke to the Rebbe. She told the Rebbe that I lost my child and I want to see my child back. And I was always counting on you that you're going to bring Mashiach and there's going to be Tchiyas HaMesim. And I, I don't accept that. I'm counting on you. And, and if you watch the video, I mean, she was speaking. Firstly, it was more emotion than reason. But the Rebbe's emotional tone went up to match hers. And as she upped, as she upped it, so did the Rebbe. And the Rebbe spoke very forcefully to her. The Rebbe told this woman that you're counting on me because I'm a Rebbe. If I'm a Rebbe, you have to listen to me. And the Rebbe says that the Avoidah of bringing Moshiach is not on me, the Rebbe. It's on every single Jew. And we have to think that way. And then we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we need to do? Now, listen, a lot happened since then. To speak very positively, I was there in the room when the Rebbe spoke to Sicha. That night, there were groups that formed committees, different ideas, diverse ideas, out there ideas of what is it that needs to be done to make Mashiach come. Many ideas are still being implemented. Over the many years, the beauty, the, the positive evolution proud evolution that happened within Lubavitch is that in the beginning some groups disagreed of the approaches of other groups whatever they were and that was yes there was a certain internal not getting along today we don't have that not everyone agrees to other people's approaches but proudly there is no more machlekas everyone is tolerant of the other because everyone wants the same thing and they were still in Golos that's the bottom line and 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 being that the Rebbe that Sicha mentioned that what we need to do, not as the only thing, but what we need to do is to demand Mashiach from God. This is mamash linked to the sugya of the Gemara that we're learning. And I would even argue it's linked to this whole era that we're living through. We're living through a very unusual era. In other words, if, let's speak about prayer. Whoever was challenged with tefillah until now 
particularly davening in the shul, has a whole new set of challenges. Davening now is not what it used to be. For many people, davening became a lot more meaningful. Perhaps for many people, davening became more challenging. I'm not going to deny that. But davening is different. Davening, everyone is davening in their homes. We have our children with us in our homes. Um, perhaps for women, perhaps for you, it did not change that much because not, most women did not go to shul in the morning and in the evening. But I would argue even for women, there was the concept of going to shul, at least for Shabbos, there was a, there was a commun- there's no more communal prayer. There's a lot of personal prayer. And there's the ideal personal prayer using the Siddur. But then there's also talking to God. And many people, just many people, because of negative things, many people, Rahman al Litzlan, uh, are very ill. And we should be mindful of that. And we should be blessing and thanking God if everyone is healthy. I mean, especially in the Lubavitch community. I know, me personally, I stopped looking at the certain Lubavitch websites, COL, etc. Because I become sick, I regress when I see that someone passed away. And every day people are passing away. That is people that are mamish passing away, Rahman al-Atzlan. The amount of people that are ill is unfathomable. Here in Sola, many people are sick. There are people from our shul that are right now in the hospital. And because of uh, my doctor, David Cohen, so I'm, in, I'm a little bit now connected to other patients from the LA community. There are many Yidin that I'm sure, if they don't want it to be public, that are sitting right now in ICU, intubated, unable to breathe by their own. So th- we're living through a very s- serious moment of din, the week of Gevur and Svira Soimer. And let me tell you something, when a person feels that their life is in jeopardy, they daven differently. Davening is something you really talk to God. And, and halavai, that we should have that connection when we're healthy. And we should have, and we could have, and we will have. But I think everyone's davening is getting upgraded. And, 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 and people that Baruch Hashem have health, there's many people, many people have real parnasa challenges. And you know, when things are good, we thank God from a certain depths of our soul, but when things are challenging, still in Golis, we really talk to God. And that's the positive, that's the silver lining in a lot of tzadahs. I'm not minimizing the tzadahs, but if we want to, and we should stay focused on the positive, I think a big part of our Aveda right now, being that by divine providence we are confined to our homes, a lot of this final moment in Golis is inward work. Aveda. I have to work with me. Me, yeah, with my spouse and with my children. It's within the family. But me, also meaning within me. That's the ikar. I got to work within myself. And a big part of my internal avoidah is not my eating kosher. I'm not minimizing that. But a lot of my internal avoidah is connected to prayer. It's introspection. It's becoming better familiar with my, with my prose and figuring out how to use it better in service of God and in service of my fellow man, and figuring out the areas that I'm in Golos, that I have limitations, and uh, doing my part, making an effort, together with asking God for God to give a Hatzlacha, especially if it's in areas that, without God's help, with all the effort in the world, I may not succeed. So in that context, coming back to prayer, Chana spoke, the Gemara says, disrespectful to God, she was not coming from a bad place. And, not, and, and she was successful. And just to quickly recap that one of the things she told God Almighty is that you will have to give me a child regardless. Without, re, re, without reviewing the details, but there is a law of a saita. And if a woman becomes a saita, but she actually did not have a physical relation with another man, not other than her husband, and she undergoes the procedure, which brings about a certain amount of shame, 
or a lot of shame upon this woman, then she she not only becomes proven innocent, but so to say to counter the shame that she underwent, she is blessed, and according to some opinions, she'll be blessed that if she never had children, she'll have a child. So Hannah tells God, if you're not going to give me a child without, without these extreme measures, I'll make myself into a saita, and then you'll be obligated to fulfill what you wrote in your taita, because God chose to be bound by the rules of the mitzvahs, by the rules of the taita. Now that's a very strong statement. And God, and she succeeded. So anyways, this is the context where we're up to. Again, we are, we are whoever has the gemaras, the gemaras that many people purchased. Um, I do have one more gemara in my home. If anyone wants it, I can leave it in my mailbox and you can disinfect it and pick it up and use it. Again, we are up to page 31b3. That's, we, that's where we're at. And 31b3, which is the left side of the page, we are towards the bottom of the right column. It's the left side of the page towards the bottom of the right column. I hope everyone who has, who's able, will be able to follow inside. And again, I'll do my best to, to speak it out articulately that everyone who does not have this should be able to follow along as well. Okay. The last thing we learned before Pesach, a few weeks before Pesach, interestingly, the last opinion was that Chana davened to have a usual child, a not an extraordinary child. Interesting. Like, we not very smart, not very tall, not very this, not very that. Average. She felt that average people, in most cases, are a lot more successful than extraordinary people. And, and it's good to know that. And, and truth be told, let me word it in a positive way, every person has something extraordinary. And that is your greatest asset, and that could be your greatest handicap. For example, if a child is very intelligent, and I witnessed that amongst the Chevre, the people that were gifted with a very special IQ, they went to school, they were able to follow with very little effort, some of them with, with mamish no effort, and they became lazy. They became lazy. They never developed uh, diligence. They never developed uh, giving it their all. They never needed to do that. Right? Or God forbid, if a person on the other spectrum, if a person has a lot of challenges, then they feel frustrated. Average is good. Average means if you're not going to make an effort, you're not going to get anywhere special. You want to get somewhere special and everyone should, then you got you to put the work in. And there's nothing more satisfying than putting the effort in. And that's the only way we grow, is whenever we go beyond what we are accustomed to. Anyways, coming back over here, the Gemara continues. Quoting words of Hannah. She tells Eli, I am the woman who stood with you here praying to God. I am the woman that stood with you here. So Amar ben Levi, Mikan, from these words, from her words, we derive that that it is prohibited to sit within for Amos of someone who is engaged in prayer. How do we derive it from her words? By the way, for those who are using the Gemaras, we just turned the page. Now we are on the top of 31b4. The word nitzeves, right? Nitzav, atem nitzav. The word nitzeves means to stand alone. To stand, I am the woman that stood, that I stood alone. In other words, there's a concept of my personal space. This is a mystical concept. I think most of us are sensitive towards it. If someone walks too close to you, 
you feel like your space was invaded, even if you're in the street. This is not if it doesn't matter where you're at. Personal space means, let me begin mystically and then milmaila lomata. Every person has an ashama. An ashama is something so great and awesome that it, all of it, or the higher levels of the neshama, begashmias, is unable to go in the person's body. The lower parts do, like the nefesh. The word nefesh means to rest. It's called the part of the soul that rests because it actually rests in the body. Truth be told, an ashama is something spiritual. So it's hard to have, you don't imagine some sort of... Um, I don't know, Lahavdal Gasper, the ghost, you know, resting in your body, something. It's not that. But it's, 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 it's able to, so to say, conform to, and therefore, ideologically fit into every part of the person. The higher parts of our soul, particularly as we learn in Kabbalah, the levels known as Chaya and Yechida, are so great that... Uh, that, it's, that we are unable, it's unable to enter the body. It's like, it's like an aura that goes around the person. Okay. When we say it goes around the person, so mystically, how far, how much around the person, it surrounds the person for Amis. For Amis is around, around six feet, towards each direction. In other words, if a person would lay down no matter which way they would be facing, and not only lay down, but extend their hands a little bit, they would occupy that space. So there's a circular place around every person that's called the person's spiritual space, in which the Chaya and the Yechida are present. It's not only six feet around the person. If you are Chaya and Yechida, if you have the schus of being more connected to it, then its light and its energy spills over beyond when you walk into a room in which there is a tzaddik or a tzedkani is there, you, you'll feel, you feel something special. You'll be in a higher place. True. But any person, no matter who they are, occupy at least that amount of space. And there are many interesting halachic consequences. One would be that, for example, if there is an article that is ownerless, someone owns something and they threw it out, hefker, and it's out there on the street, in a case where, where, where halachically, and that's the, in the case that I'm describing, whoever will find it first, not find it by seeing it, but whoever would pick it up, whoever would make a king in, would be the new owner. One way of acquiring it will be picking it up. There is another way of acquiring it. You have to have kavana for what I'm saying to work halachically, but this is the concept. If I am walking so close to this hefker ownerless item, that it's within my four amas, it's, in, it's within my four cubits from any direction, I'm aware of it, and I want for my aura, for my space, to acquire it for me, then just like if you were to throw an item in my front yard, in my home, on property that belongs to me, my property acquires for me, if I want, if I want, that's important. That means if you want to give me a gift, and I want to halachically acquire it. Again, if I lift it, if I pick it up, it's mine. What happens if I didn't lift it? But you dropped it off in my mailbox, so you put it on my front porch. Halachically, I acquired it because I wanted to, and by the fact that it's in my property, it becomes mine. So halacha says, imagine, that even if it's not my property, I'm walking on this sidewalk, it's on the street, it's public property, it's government property. Still, if there is a lost item there, and I would like to acquire it, 
And my kavana is to acquire it, not by lifting it, but to acquire it simply by my space acquiring it for me, then it works. Wow. So there's mamash my space. Now, because of that, also connected to quarantine, in an ideal world, when we go to shul, when we go to shul, it would be ideal for me not to daven in your space. I'm bringing my energy into your space. It's almost, if a person is very sensitive, it's almost like me talking to you when you're trying to daven. De facto, it's impossible for us to, to, uh, to put this into practice. It's impossible because I don't care how big the shul is. Normally, the big shuls are for larger communities. The way every shul in the world is set up, going back to the Beis Amigdash, and the Beis Amigdash, there were in chairs, but it says in Pirkei Yavis that people stood to each other. Sometimes we were so, we were packed like sardines. Whoever had the schus of davening in 770, or, you know, whoever went to the Kaisel during Birchaz Kahanim, you know, we all had that, that positive experience that you can be in a prayer mode, in a community, in a communal setting, and it's packed with Jews. Th- that's okay. I'm saying theoretically, theoretically, everyone should be davening in his or her own space. And therefore, I give you a couple of halachic consequences. Beginning again, going from the highest to the lowest. In the Beis HaMikdash, when the men bow down, I'm saying men because in the Beis HaMikdash, only the men prostrated themselves. Also written in Pirkei Yavis, there was a miracle that and, and bowing down in the Beis HaMikdash meant not the way men do it today in a shul, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, that we get on our knees and then we put our hand on, on the floor. Much more than that. Bowing down meant that uh, a million times, just to have the image, like Superman. In other words, we lay down on our stomachs and our feet are extended and our hands are extended frontwards. That's, that's four amas. That means if an per, average person is three amas high with their hands extended, they're four amas. And it says in Pirkei that everyone was able to do so. Because at that moment, because of our bittal to God, even the physical space, wow, afforded everyone their space. So the words in Pirkei That happened physically in the temple. Spiritually, in the shul, it's the same way. So say the great Mikobalim. That even though ideally, based on this Gemara, everyone should be davening in their own space, when you go to a shul and your neighbor in the shul is standing very close to four amas to you, since that we are talking to God, there, there is no disturbance. It's as if they're not invading your space. If one would be very spiritually sensitive, they would not be disturbed by it. Ideally, I'll peek Kabbalah, because God is giving us that space. Having said that, there is one halacha. Not that known, but we're talking about these halachas. And that is, if I... I'm not up to Shemayna Esri. I'm before, I'm after, and I would like to sit down. If there is another Jew within my four Amas, especially if I see them, that means it's not what's behind me, but it's towards the sides and in front of me, I'm not allowed to sit down. Because since in, in that person was davening Shemayna Esri, they're standing, so the energy of that space is a Shemayna Esri energy. And don't go ahead and sit down in it. That's a halacha. The wordings are my wordings, but the halacha is you may not... This is from Chana. But Chana went to the temple, but she figured out in the temple, she, she's reminding Eli who she is, I am the woman, she says the words Hanitzeves. Hanitzeves means that I was the woman that was davening on my own. That's Aleph. So much packed in. Beis, another important concept of davening on your own. 
everyone appreciates camaraderie. Perhaps some people more than others, but there is a certain nature that most, the vast majority of human beings have, is that we are social beings. We like to be with others. Having said that, whether we, we are ready to accept it or not, there are certain steps in our lives, birth, the moment of passing, and many other important steps in between that we have to do on our own. And that's, that's one of them is davening. A person who is healthily married and, is, and, and has healthy friendships and, and, and needs to do things in a group, there is the time and place for that. Even though men are obligated to daven with a minion, that's the paradox of the minion. We have a minion, so the Shekhinah is more revealed. But when I stand Shemana Esrei, I'm talking to God on my own. Now, if I don't know how to pray, so there is a concept of communal prayer. God, I'm not taking that away at all. There is also the Shliach Tzibur saying the words on behalf of all of us. That's a communal prayer. But even in the minion, the silent Shemana Esrei, my mindset is, is that I am, it's me and God. Which is why so many people have a hard time praying in a minion. Because these people sense that davening is one of these things, like Hannah says, I'm standing alone. Even if me and you are standing at the same time, even if me and you are saying the same words, even if we're saying the same words out loud, we're singing the davening together. I, I, in my mind, I am talking to God. It's me and God. And Bakhlal, the inner... The inner a kavana of prayer, getting close to God, climbing up the ladder, climbing up the mountain, self-introspection. Self-introspection is me, <laughs> not me looking into you, figuring out what you have to fix. I'm looking at what I need to fix. And me making this achlata and that, it's all personal. And that is the, the soul of prayer. And she went to the Mishkan again. I mean, she didn't have it in her home. But even in the Mishkan, she had the koyach. I know for men it's easy because we have a talus. And if you, especially if you put the talus over your head, it's very helpful because there's no visual distractions. And Bakhlal, visual distractions of any type, we all cover our eyes when we say the Shema. That's another inner meaning of it because that's the Gemara over here. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says, I'm not allowed to stand in your space. You're not, you're not supposed to stand in my space. Again, halachically, technically, yeah, in the shul, it's accepted. It's not shayach. We don't own that much real estate to have these large buildings that everyone is going to stand four amas apart. And that was true even in the Holy Temple. We stood together. But like I said, one halach, I'm not allowed to sit down if I'm in your four amas and if you're still standing Shemona Esrei, especially if you're in front of me. It says in Shulchan Aruch that if you're behind me, I don't have to look back. Another interesting halacha. One more halacha, then we'll go on in the Gemara. That if I'm taking my three steps back in Shemona Esrei, in a shul, I should look behind me and uh, people are not that makbed on the four amas because that six feet is a, is a lot. But I have to be careful not to walk directly in front of you. Of course, I'm not going to run over you. We're not talking about that. I don't know if you noticed. I don't know by the women, by the men's section, people that are more learned, if they're standing Shmona Esrei and they finish, they will always glance back. And if someone is davening behind them, they're going to take the three steps diagonally. Okay, they're still going to be within the four amas, but at this concept, they're, they're, they're fulfilling the spirit of this concept. Not to invade another person's space, especially when they're praying.
Okay. Good. Any questions or comments? Okay, Viter. Chana continues. 31B4. The right side, on the right page, on the top left column. El Hanar Hazehis Palolti. She brought back her son Shmuel when he turned two. And she tells Shmuel, for this child I prayed. And there was something that happened that's not explicitly written, but that is being implied by her using the word Hazer, for this child I prayed. And there was a story behind the story, as there always is. Omar And Bachlal, the Gemara, is very insightful in, in, in teaching us how to always see that which is in between the lines. Anytime a person makes a statement, there is what the person is saying explicitly, and then there is what the person is saying implicitly. Mamish, half of the Gemara is learning halachas from that which is implied. That which the Mishnah wrote explicitly is written. But again, you have a word in here, you have a word in Tanakh. El Hanar Hazehi Right away, the Gemara picks up on that. She could have said, El Hanar Hispalalti. I prayed for a child. Now, you can argue, of course, she said this because she brought Shmuel. But no, she, there was something that happened. And this is what happened. There was a story here. Omar Rabalazar says, Rabalazar, Shmuel, who was two years old, he did something that one should not do, and that is rendering a halachic ruling in the presence of his teacher. Let me explain to you what this means. What does rendering a halachic decision mean? Um, if someone were to ask you, what blessing do you make on water? And you tell that person, you make a shahakal nihiyavidvaray, you're not rendering a halachic decision. Because this is a rule that everyone, even people with minimum knowledge, are aware of. Even in the days where the oral title was not yet written, but by the fact that the vast majority of the people are familiar with something, then you, then you should tell the person what bracha you make for a cup of water. But when it comes to any halachic questions, that there might be various opinions in halacha, especially before the times that books were printed, that's very important, this last nuance, but let's go back before the oral Torah was written and even after the oral Torah was written at a time that not everyone had access to the information. So they would only get the answer by the sage, by the knowledgeable person. If the sage is available, then the student should not give the answer. If the sage is available, if the chacham is available, the student should not. It means if someone in a group setting and someone asks a question, and there is someone that's the teacher, or someone that's considered the one with the, with the greater amount of knowledge. It's, it's proper for the one with greater knowledge to answer, and not for a, another student to give the answer. And that's especially true if the answer is not so simple, meaning that there are, there are different opinions in halacha, and you have to have a certain amount of weighing which, which side should be taking because of certain circumstances, which which might not be that known, etc., etc., there it's very inappropriate for someone to render a halachic ruling in the presence of his teacher. This, by the way, has legal consequences until today. Um, today, in the presence of his teacher, doesn't only mean in the physical presence because of communication, 
that we all have right right nowadays. If there is a black and white ruling, especially if it's printed in a book, and someone asks you the question or asks me the question, we can give the answer. But if there is a, a nuanced, complex question, that even in halacha there are various opinions, it's wrong, even now, even for a pulpit rabbi, for example, like myself, to give the, to give the answer. It's appropriate for me to tell the person, let me consult, let me find out, and ask someone who has more knowledge than me if that person is available to me. And nowadays, because of technology, if it's not Shabbos and Yantiv, everyone has access to almost anyone, which is a very important thing, especially by more serious halachic rulings. And if a person has, so to say, the, um, the immature arrogance, well, I know this, I know, I'm good. No, we don't, we don't want that. We don't want that. Even if you think you know the answer, you tell the person, let me consult. This is what I think. And there's nothing to lose over here. Because if your teacher, who knows more, to whom you have access, will confirm what you're saying, then good for you. And, and, and you never know. And he might not confirm. He might, he, might, he might say something otherwise. And this also has the benefit of giving kavod to the, to the elders. This is so true on so many levels. I want to give one, a, a, a one corona example. And I'm saying this with the greatest respect. When this broke out, I'm going back a week or so after Purim, many Rabbanim of this area wrote a beautiful letter. Amongst other things, they suggested, this is not relevant for the month of Nisan, this was relevant for days in which Tachnun is recited, that when we daven, this is more for men, in the morning and the afternoon, that we should say the long of Vino Malkeinu. Just technically, every day in davening, for the, for the people, men and women, if women daven tachnun, God bless you. But if people say tachnun, at the end of tachnun, there is what we call the abbreviated Ovino Malkeno. I think there are four Ovino Malkenos. Yeah, four Ovino Malkenos. And then we have what we know on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur on fast days. We have a very beautiful lengthy Ovino Malkeno. It comes from Rabbi Kiva. It's a very powerful prayer. And uh, they decided that it should be said that every day until the coronavirus is over, when you say Tachnun, don't say the short of it, say the long of it. Okay. People ask me, what's my opinion? So I call up Rabbi Shusterman. What is your opinion? And he said very wisely, he says, first of all, there's nothing wrong with it. Good for you. Sum gesund. Davening more is a good thing. However, he told me that normally, whenever there is a calamity, as there is right now, and people want to innovate that change in the prayers, you get the elder rabbis of the city, and they, and they are the ones, not that they have to take the initiative, no, grassroots ideas are the best ideas, but you get them on board. You want them to, to say amen. And he felt that the elder rabbis, he wasn't talking about his own honor, I know Rabbi Shustaman well, but they were young, you know, people like myself, young people in the community, and he felt that they haven't, and LA is blessed with real rabbanim, I'm talking about people that have, that have, have years, we respect the elders, people that are in their 80s, people at least are, that are in their 70s, I think there's a rough here in his 90s, get, get, get them, they, they were here the longest, and you have people that have a lot of knowledge, normally, Unless God takes away someone's memory, the older a person is, if they spent their life learning, and uh, they know more. Anyway, that's, that, I liked what he said. In other words, first of all, God bless everyone, and he wasn't minimizing the initiative, and say it, gesund hate. But he was like giving me as a rule, that when you want to undertake something, get, confer, get the okay from, from the elders. Society would be so much more beautiful if we were to do so. In most cases, they would say, Amen. And you gave them COVID. And sometimes they might know something that you don't know. And you might be saying something wrong. Maybe it should not be done. I'm not talking about it in this case. I'm just giving that as a reference. 
But coming back over here, something happened, and the little two-year-old Shmuel rendered a halachic ruling in the presence of his elders. And that's not a good thing. I mean, something happened, and, and Shmuel was, was, was going to get punished for that. And when she tells Eli, El Hanar Hazeis Palalti, I prayed for this child, really, as we'll read it in the Gemara, she was appealing to Eli the Kayan that he should not get punished for him rendering a halachic ruling in the presence of a teacher. Now, what exactly happened? The Gemara tells you the detail. Shinamar, as it says, that they slaughtered the bull, which is a carbon, one of the three animal types from which we bring sacrifices, from which we'll bring sacrifices in the third temple is a bull. Right? Cattle. It can be a male or female, but here it was a bull. And they brought the child to Eli. And the, and the verse juxtaposes these two statements. They shechted the bull and they brought the child. It should not have been in the same verse. So that's another hint as to what happened. Ella, what happened? Armelam, Eli, what happened was is that Chalab brought Shmuel at a moment, that point at that moment, Eli Hakoyen decided that a bull should be brought for a sacrifice. Okay, and what Eli said was Kiru Koyen, call a Koyen for the Koyen to shecht it. By the way, Eli himself could have slaughtered it. A Koyen Gadol can do the Shechita, but he didn't want to. So Eli said, call a Koyen to shecht it. Now, Shmuel did not hear Eli say those words, but he witnessed people looking for a Koyen to shecht the bull. Chazin... Chazanuhu Shmuel Shmuel saw the Havu Mahadri Basar Koyin that they were looking for a Koyin Lemishchat to shecht this animal Armaluhu. So he tells the people searching for a Koyin Lamaluhu Lahaduri Basar Koyin Lemishchat. Why do you have to look for a Koyin to slaughter? And he gave the following halachic ruling, which is correct: that Shechita Bezar Kesherim shechting a carbon in the Beis Hamikdash need not be done only by Kohanim. Wow. Even though shechita is the first step of bringing a sacrifice, and as a rule, all avoida can only be done by kohanim. Shechita is the big exception. It's considered the beginning of the offering, but a shechita can be done even by a non-kohen. So he told the people, you don't have to go look for a kohen. You know, ask the guy right next to you. He's an he's a Israelite. Then many more people than nowadays knew how to shecht. And he, and, he, and, he, and he gave that ruling. Once he repeated the law that he was done, he was two years old. And by the way, this law is correct. What was not correct is for him to say that. That means it was expected of Shmuel as a two-year-old to have the derecheretz and to, and to say, maybe, he could have said, maybe you don't need a koyin. Ask Eli whether you need a koyin. He didn't say that. He gave a ruling. He said, no, you don't need a koyin. So the people that heard that, they brought that to Eli's awareness. I saw the comedy Eli. And Amalach Minolah, Eli asked him, how do you know this from? But he was right. And Shmuel told him, Shmuel quoted the verse. In the verse, there is never a verse that says that the coin shechted. You know how wise you have to be? You know, remembering what it does say is one level, one madrega. But learning from the fact that this is never written, from that you learn, wow, that's Mamash Moiridik. That's your average Shmuel. Wow, amazing. You know, the fact that the Torah speaks about the Kahanim bringing near, the Kahanim throwing the blood, the coin, this, the, it never does it say, Vishachat HaKoyin, that implies that only from the step that is after the slaughtering, and what step is that? This is not done nowadays, but in the Beis Hamikdash, hopefully nowadays, Moshiach is coming now, after they shechted in the temple, 
the blood needed to be received in a special utensil that was made to receive the blood. And that is part of the avoida, that's part of the service of a carbon. And that has a name, the name is called Kabbalah, the receiving of. From the receiving of the blood, then you have to walk it to the altar, then you have to sprinkle or put the blood on the altar with a lot of details. So from receiving onwards, you're obligated to use a kayan. However, that which happens before the receiving, what step is there before the receiving of the blood? Making the incision, doing the shechita, become from here, You have spoken very well. You're right. You're right. But, but you gave a ruling. You, you said how it should be. You didn't consult. You didn't defer. It didn't suggest you gave a ruling in the presence of your teacher. Who was the teacher? Eli. And the other elders that were there. Whoever renders a legal decision in the presence of his teacher, Chayev Misa is liable to death in the hands of God. Okay. So the moment, the moment Chana hears that exchange, that was the Shalom Aleichem that Eli is giving her son. He's two years old. Chana went and she shouted, she cried it to Eli. And she said, I was the woman that stood, you remember how much I, I, I prayed. I prayed for him. Don't, don't allow anything to happen to him. So so Eli, look, so what do you think Eli responded? Well, she was asking for him to be forgiven. What Eli said is, allow me to punish him. Doesn't say here what the punishment wants. The punishment was for sure something very minimal. But Eli told Chana, allow me to punish him. And, and, no, 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 no. Eli said, fuck, I'm sorry. Eli said, allow me to punish him. You know, that, 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 that something is going to happen to him. And I will daven and you'll get a greater son. That's what Eli said. So Chana responds, no, 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 no. I prayed for him. I prayed, I needed for him to be okay, and Taka Eli davened, and he was forgiven. That's a very Gvodadika story, but that's what happened, and what we should learn from this is that if we feel like we're rendering a halachic ruling, then especially if the one who asked has access to, and even the one who's who's attempting to give, that has access to people that are greater than him and then her, it's always worth it to consult. You should know in the halachic world, I don't know how it works in the secular world. I think maybe in the secular world, some people can find this demeaning. Like I have to have the confidence. I can do it. We don't, we don't have this attitude when it comes to halachic rulings. Never do we say I can do it. No one wants to give a halachic ruling. No one wants to give a, even great rabbanim are afraid to give a halachic ruling. All of the great Halachic rulings that are given nowadays are never given by one person. One Rav, one big Rav is going to write a whole responsa. But then he's going to share his responsa to his colleagues. And if, and if they disagree with it, he won't give it out. Especially in very important decisions. And this is coming from a good place. Because no one likes to be the... Um... Then you have, you know, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Or you have, you know, the, 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 today's Zalman Nechamir Goldberg. You have the big Rabbanim that they are accepted to be the top Rabbanim. Even they consult, but they give a ruling. And in some areas they don't consult. But they, but they have to be the, the, the greatest authority in Halacha. Now, if we're not speaking about Halacha, we don't take this approach. Speaking about Halacha. When it comes to giving an insight, everyone ha- has the right and the, and the mitzvah to give your own insight. You don't want to consult. You, you don't want to only share someone else's insight. You can give your own insight. 
You can give your own pshat. That's beautiful. But giving a ruling how things should be done, if it's something that is not so black and white, again, you can pass in what brachas to make. If you know all the brachas, especially because it's printed, the rulings were made, you're just repeating the book. But there are many halachic questions today that are, not, that are nuanced. And even people with knowledge know that they can go to this side or to that side. And therefore a ruling is being given. And that's where you should really consult when you have access to your own teacher or to someone who is older. And especially if they also have more knowledge. All right, we'll stop over here. And we'll